Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Fairly brief passage, but a lot here, so uh, we'll look at it in more detail in just a few moments. But find Hebrews 13 in your Bible, and then after you found that, join me in standing. Let's uh, read it together. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have given us practical instructions and in how to live the Christian life. And so, Lord, we uh, pray that you would help us as we seek to apply these truths to our lives. And, uh, Lord, that we would uh, do well in that, that we would uh, not only uh, understand that you have redeemed us, but that we have responsibility to one another. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have brotherly love toward one another and that uh, love would increase and grow stronger. And, Lord, that uh, we might minister to one another's needs. And, Lord, uh, that we might honor you in doing this. So, Lord, again, this morning, we love you. Uh, We praise you. We exalt uh, the name of Christ. Uh, Lord, we desire to be pleasing in your sight. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless as we do that. Lord, that every aspect of our worship would be in accordance to your plan. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's an obvious change of tone when you get to the 13th chapter of Hebrews. It has been observed that the book of Hebrews begins like an essay proceeds like a sermon, and ends like a letter. Chapter 13 is the letter part. Now, I have referred to this book primarily as a sermon, but the first 12 chapters have not really focused on commands for Christians for living the Christian life. So far, it has been primarily doctrine with a few warnings and exhortations sprinkled in. And as we have seen, it is written to a mixed audience of the lost and the saved with a particular emphasis on those who are right on the edge of saving faith, but so far have fallen short of it. They have not yet fully embraced the new covenant. But when we get to chapter 13, we find clear admonition and commands to genuine believers. We've seen the general exhortation to run the Christian race, but here we see the specifics of what that means. In essence, the author of Hebrews is saying, having said all this, now let me explain to you how you are to live. In fact, not only does he tell us how we are to live, he also tells us how we are to feel. He explains what kinds of attitudes we are to have as we relate to one another and to God. 
if we are really living the life of faith, as he has so eloquently described, then it is going to make a difference in how we love each other, how we practice hospitality, how committed we are to our marriage. It's going to make a difference in how we manage our bank accounts, etc., etc. And this practical teaching comes right on the heels of the doctrinal pinnacle of this book. Having given us a glimpse of the glory of heaven, the inspired writer now brings us back down to earth to the nitty-gritty of daily living. Having pointed us to the magnificence of the heavenly Jerusalem and the unshakable kingdom, which is our inheritance, he now brings us to the mundane realities of life, including suffering. And perhaps the key connection between these two chapters is verse 28, which says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Chapter 13 is a description of that acceptable service. And although some have questioned whether this final chapter fits with the rest of the book, it clearly is far from an afterthought. It follows the pattern of the rest of the New Testament epistles in that doctrine is then followed by practical application. Its message really cannot be separated from the rest of this book, and it serves to bring the themes of the first 12 chapters to a fitting conclusion. True faith always results in godly living. Genuine love for God always results in genuine love for God's people. So this chapter really deals with the subject of what we would call Christian ethics or standards of conduct and behavior. Doctrine provides the foundation for Christian ethics. There really can be no ethics without doctrine. So-called situational ethics are not really ethics at all in the sense of having a pattern or standard of behavior. Because when what you do is based on how you feel at the time, the very notion of a standard is thrown out the window. John MacArthur writes, It is not possible to have any system of ethics without standards of right and wrong. You cannot reasonably require a certain type of living or morality from a person without underlying, undergirding, and universal moral principles that determine those standards. Otherwise, you have no ethics at all. Only a moral free-for-all, which is exactly what many people are advocating and exemplifying today. Listen, the idea that doctrine is useless and divisive and that all we need is love is fantasy and foolishness. Love itself requires a standard. 
Without that standard, one's person or one person's concept of love is going to be different from and often contradictory to someone else's concept of love. There has to be a divine standard even in regard to love. And the biblical doctrine that we have in God's Word provides that standard. Someone once said, trying to throw away doctrine while keeping ethics is like trying to keep your house intact while taking out the foundation. It's impossible to do that. And by the way, it is impossible to have Christian ethics apart from a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Every moral command in the New Testament presupposes saving faith in Christ. This is the primary reason why the secular world cannot understand the moral stands that we take. Christian ethics do not make sense to them. Many of the moral standards given in the New Testament run diametrically against the grain of secular values. And without a saving relationship to Jesus Christ, a person has neither the sustained desire to live according to these standards, nor the power to live according to them. So these commands here are given for believers. We are to live by them even if the world does not. And it is important here to understand that these commands are given in the context of Christian fellowship, Christian community. These are all principles of koinonia, living in Christian community, which is how God has designed the Christian life to operate. Christians must be bound together in fellowship if we're going to live our lives to the maximum for Christ. That's why God established the New Testament church. He intends for us to be bound together in spiritual bonds. The Greek word for fellowship means to share life together. It is much deeper than just cookies and Kool-Aid. It is sharing the burdens and the joys of life is built on the foundation of genuine love. And in fact, we see a key Greek word for love used in three different ways in these first few verses. Three times in the first five verses, we find the Greek word philia connected as a compound word with another Greek word. In verse 1, it is Philadelphia brotherly love. In verse 2, it is philozenia, the love of strangers. And in verse 5, we see aphil arguros, which is without covetous or literally without the love of money. Now, we're going to go through those in a lot more detail as we go through it, but we really could say that the, that Christian ethics has to do with loving people and things in the proper way. So with that in mind, let's move now into this text and the importance of letting our love show. 
We see three primary elements in this text. The first one is love that is sustaining. Love that is sustaining. Look with me at verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Simple enough, right? But notice it doesn't say here, let love of the brethren begin. It says, let love of the brethren continue. The love of the brethren had already been demonstrated in this congregation. Remember what the author of Hebrews said about them in chapter 6, verse 10. He said, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. They were already demonstrating this kind of love, but he says, continue this, continue. So love is the primary moral standard that we see here. And this particular kind of love is toward fellow believers. Now, this word Philadelphia is not the word we might expect here. We might expect to see the word agape, as the Apostle John used. Phileo is one of the Greek words that we translate love, but it refers to affection, sympathy, kindness, and friendship rather than the self-sacrificing agape of godlike love. In other words, this means you like someone and you are fond of them. Now, folks, this is important because sometimes you hear people in the church say something like, well, listen, God has said I have to love them, but that doesn't mean I have to like them, right? No, you have to do both. You have to do both. You have to love them unconditionally the way God loves you. And you have to be fond of them, according to Scripture. This word Philadelphia emphasizes the practical aspects of love. This is love that does. It has to do with meeting one another's needs. Now, verses 2 and 3 go into uh, more detail to describe this kind of love in action. But this is not some sort of sentimental feeling here. It is affection that leads to serving. John wrote in 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Even though John uses the word agape here, it is the same kind of love because he's talking about love for the brethren. And he goes so far as to say this kind of love even lays down its own life for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And this kind of love takes the world's goods and uses it to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Brotherly love is the natural outflow of the Christian life. It is a given. It cannot be generated, but it can be stifled and it can also be nurtured. 
So the command here is not to make it happen. The command is keep it going. Keep it going. When a person is saved, he is filled with the love of Christ toward other believers. Why is that? Well, because the love of God has been poured out in his heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's Romans 5, 5. But that love can be diminished over time. So we have to nurture it. We have to help it develop. The Apostle Peter wrote, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You've been given that kind of love for the brethren, but keep loving them from your heart. Keep exercising that love which was given to you at salvation. You remember what Paul told the Ephesians as he appealed to them as brothers in Christ? He told them to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words... They're not told to manufacture Christian unity, but they're told to preserve it. Preserve it. How do you do that? Through brotherly love. We're to nurture Christian unity, and we do that through love. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Christians, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. They were commanded to love their brethren, but they were commended because they were already doing that. And yet they were admonished to excel still more in this. They didn't need another command from God because they already knew what God's will was. They were to just continue to do it. One author wrote, it's amazing how true Christianity takes away hostility. When we are right with God, we will let brotherly love continue. When we do, our minds will be on the right enemies. We will not make one another the targets of insults, animosity, or hostility. The New Testament admonishes us to keep our relationship with our Christian brethren sweet and precious. This is a command from the Lord. And of course, the New Testament teaches that anytime there is conflict, that we are to lovingly resolve that conflict. We're to initiate reconciliation as part of that brotherly love. And there are three primary reasons why brotherly love is so important. First of all, because it is an important testimony to unbelievers. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for each other shows that we belong to him. And when Unbelievers see the love of Christians and that love that we have toward one another. They're drawn to Christ, the Bible says. Of course, the opposite of that is also true. 
when they see us at odds with one another and they see us fighting and fussing with one another, they may conclude that Christianity is not valid. A lack of brotherly love can destroy our testimony. But a second reason why brotherly love is so important is because it provides assurance for our salvation. In 1 John 3.14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Love for other Christians is proof of genuine spiritual regeneration. And you should ask yourself the question, do I have a genuine love and concern for other believers? Do I sincerely care about their welfare? Do I have a deep desire to be in fellowship with other believers? And if you can answer yes to that, you can have assurance that you have, in fact, passed out of death and into life. You can have assurance of your salvation because this kind of love only comes with the new nature that is the result of spiritual regeneration. The third reason why brotherly love is so important is because it pleases God. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, we know this as parents. We know how pleasing it is when our children live together in unity, right? God also, it is pleasing to God when His children walk together in unity. And the basic premise of this kind of love is given by Paul, I believe, in Romans 12.10. He said, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. This is really detailed in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Lack of brotherly love comes from sinful pride and selfishness. That means brotherly love is only nurtured in humility and godly self-sacrifice. It is part of our dying to self and putting others first. Well, I could say a lot more about this, but we have to move on now to a second element in this passage, which is love expressed to strangers. Love expressed to strangers. Look at me at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The word for strangers here means someone you do not personally know. And it could refer here to believers or unbelievers. But in this context, it probably refers primarily to fellow Christians who are traveling. Paul wrote in Galatians 6.10, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. In the ancient world, hospitality was very important because there weren't many inns 
to stay in. And the ones that did exist were often places you would not want to stay. They had bad reputations of being places of ill repute. They were often dangerous, and they were tremendously expensive. In other words, they did not have Motel 6 in every town that promised to keep the light on for you. And as we know from the missionary travels of Paul, there were traveling evangelists and Christian businessmen who would need food and lodging. And so it became a virtue among the Jews to practice this kind of hospitality, and certainly even more was expected from the Christians. As Christianity began to spread around the world, the Christians, who, by the way, met in homes for worship, would then open up their homes to house these travelers. And this became very important because, as one commentator pointed out, as time passed and Christians were driven from their homes and had their possessions taken, they would find other Christians who would open up their homes and their hearts to them. Later, refugees from persecution were taken care of in this same way. And again, this was part of Christian love in action. Hospitality is a key part of brotherly love. And it's interesting to note that practicing hospitality is even given as a qualification for elders in the church. And by the way, notice how this command is structured here. The phrase, do not neglect, essentially means stop being forgetful. Apparently, they were neglecting hospitality in some way. So they're being admonished to do a better job with this. The word for show hospitality to strangers is one word, philozenia, which means love for strangers. So this is part of letting your love show, opening up. Your home is part of brotherly love. And notice there's a gar clause here. He says, for, that's the Greek word gar, by this some have entertained angels without knowing. Now this is probably referring to Genesis 18 where Abraham entertained some angels without knowing it. One of those angels was the angel of the Lord or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. But the point is that Abraham showed hospitality to them without knowing at first that they were angels. These angels, by the way, announced to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. And two of these angels then visited Lot in Sodom and ultimately destroyed that city. There are also a couple of other times when God's people entertained angels unaware. Gideon entertained angels in Judges 6 and Manoah did in Judges 13. These also may have been on the author's mind here. But we need to be careful about this verse. The message for us is not necessarily that we should be motivated in our hospitality by the chance that an angel might show up 
at our house. No, the message is that in the providence of God, those we minister to may become a greater blessing to us than we are to them. We never know who providence may lead to our door or across our path. But our motivation for practicing hospitality should not be that of hoping a literal angel will be entertained, but that God will be pleased and that His purpose will be accomplished. Our motive for hospitality must be brotherly love. And Christians are under a divine mandate to be hospitable and to show love in a practical way. Well, we have to move on. There is a third element that we see here, and that is love expressed through sympathy. Through sympathy. John MacArthur writes, Sympathy is closely related to sustained love. It is easier to help others when we ourselves have needed help. It is easier to appreciate hunger when we have been hungry, loneliness when we have been lonely, and persecution when we have been persecuted. Now, it's not that we necessarily have to have experienced the same thing that someone else is going through. But the idea here is that we should try to identify with those who are suffering. And the truth of the matter is that as Christians, our own struggles should make us more sensitive to others who are struggling. And one of the surest cures for self-pity is loving service to someone else. In fact, well-known biblical counselor Jay Adams talks about that very thing. He says, many of your counselees' problems stem from a self-centered approach to life. They rarely think to do anything for anyone. He says, the person who never reaches out to another is a person who will become miserable. He concludes, these sorts of commands are precisely what many counselees who are wrapped up in themselves need to hear and obey. He says, when you are able to persuade such a counselee to get serious about doing good to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he actually begins to do so, you will soon notice a change in him for the better. Now, this may not be the best and highest motivation for showing sympathy for others, but it is true that doing so often brings about a positive side effect. Now, in verse 3, the author of Hebrews gives us two categories of people that we need to show sympathy toward. First, there are the prisoners. Look at verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Stop right there. The listeners who had been admonished negatively not to forget hospitality, verse 2, are now urged positively to continue to remember those in prison. In the first century Roman world, prison was not a place you would want to be. 
And I guess that probably has been the case for every age. But in that day and time, the government didn't provide luxuries for prisoners at the taxpayer's expense. In fact, in those days, if those who were in prison did not receive aid from the outside, they would probably die. Prisoners were dependent upon friends and family members to provide food, clothing, and medicine. Now, this verse probably has in mind primarily those who are imprisoned for their faith, but it could apply to really anyone in prison. The admonition is to remember the prisoners, and the degree attached is as though in prison with them. In other words, the Christians were to be as mindful of them as if they were sitting there looking at them. They were to keep their imprisoned brothers and sisters constantly in mind. And it's interesting to note that some of the early Christians even sold themselves into slavery to get enough money to free a fellow believer who was in prison. The early apostolic confession said, if any Christian is condemned for Christ's sake to the minds by the ungodly, do not overlook him. But from the proceeds of your toil and sweat, send him something to support himself and to, the, and to reward the soldier of Christ. Early historians testify that Christians did exactly this. Tertullian wrote, if there happened to be any in the mines banished to the islands, or shut up in prisons, the Christians became carriers of their confession. In other words, they took care of their needs. They practiced what they preach. Aristides, a pagan orator, wrote, if they hear that any one of their number is in prison or in distress for the sake of their Christ's name, they all render aid of their necessity, and if they can, they redeem them to set them free. Many of the greatest saints in the history of the church have suffered imprisonment. Paul, as you know, was imprisoned at least three times. John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Peter was likely imprisoned, as were many of the other apostles. And folks, I've seen the Mamertine prison where Paul, for sure, and perhaps Peter were imprisoned. And I can tell you, I don't know how anyone could survive in that place very long. Throughout the centuries, thousands of believers have suffered the deprivation of the dungeon. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress while imprisoned in the Bedford Jail. This was a common occurrence in the first century world. So the author of Hebrews is making sure the Christians did not neglect the needs of those in prison. Christians were not to be embarrassed by their chains, but to show love to them by meeting their needs. But there's another group here that he mentions that we need to sympathize with, and that is the persecuted persecuted. Look at the last part of verse 3. 
and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Now, that last part is difficult to interpret, but the first part clearly is speaking of those who are persecuted. This would apply to men or women who have experienced abuse in any form for their Christian faith. The verb that is translated in the New American Standard, ill-treated, is the same root word as the one used earlier for Moses, who chose to suffer ill-treatment for the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. It's the same word that was used in chapter 11, verse 37, to refer to the Old Testament saints who suffered persecution for their faith. We can show sympathy to the persecuted in at least three important ways. First, just being there with them in their time of trouble. It helps greatly to know that they're not walking through that alone, and we can come alongside them and encourage them. Secondly, we can give them some sort of direct help. We might be able to provide some financial assistance as the Philippian believers did for Paul. Or we might be able to provide something else they need during their trying time in life. Thirdly, we can show sympathy for them through prayer. The power of prayer should not be minimized at a time like this. And is a tremendous encouragement to know that our brothers and Sisters are praying for us when we walk through some difficult circumstance. Of course, Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 2, Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Carry those burdens with them. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, If one member of the body of Christ suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one is honored, all the members rejoice with it. He wrote in Romans twelve fifteen, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are to so closely identify with the pain and the joy of our fellow believers that it is like we are experiencing it ourselves. Now that last phrase of verse 3 probably does not refer to the body of Christ in spite of the fact that Calvin and Erasmus took it that way. I believe it likely has the effective meaning of as if you yourselves were suffering bodily. The literal Greek translation is as also those being in the body. Since we all have bodies... We all understand what it means to suffer bodily. So the phrase, in the body, implies imagining what it would feel like to us if we were in their shoes. We have, as you know, a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. So we, too, should sympathize with our fellow believers in their times of weakness. Well, we're out of time. What do we do with all this? Let 
our love show. Let our love show. Get busy showing practical love to other believers. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you'll help us apply this, not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. And Lord, we pray that you would convict us where we might be weak, where we might be lacking or neglecting uh, some of this instruction. So Lord, we pray you would help us to do a better job with all of these things that we would, in fact, have this type of genuine love for one another and uh, that that love would just grow and become even more enhanced in days ahead. So, Lord, use this uh, passage in your word to uh, accomplish your purpose in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.